Chapter Seven of George Washington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Washington by Callista McCabe Courtney. Chapter Seven. General Gates defeated at Camden, South Carolina. Battle of Kings Mountain. Washington sends aid to the South. Siege of Yorktown. Surrender of Lord Cornwallis. Peace treaty signed. Washington's farewell to his officers. 1780 to 1783. Though Washington did not have any encounters with the British for a long time, the Americans were engaged in bitter fighting in the South. Lord Cornwallis angered the people of South Carolina by hanging a number of prisoners at Charleston, and by the cruel raids of General Tarleton and his dragoons, who rode about the country, slaying innocent people. General Thomas Sumter, who was nicknamed the Gamecock, gathered together a few men. Those who had no guns sharpened their saws into swords, and fastened hunting-knives on long poles, and thus armed, these soldiers gave the British a great deal of trouble. Meanwhile General Lincoln was still held a prisoner of war, and the people were very glad when they heard that General Gates, the hero of Saratoga, had been sent to take command of the southern forces of the American army. Gates was very headstrong, however and thought he knew more than any one could tell him, and would take no advice from officers on the ground. He did the worst thing he could do. He rushed at once into an open battle with Lord Cornwallis, August 16, 1780, and met with a terrible defeat at Camden, South Carolina. Cornwallis now marched into North Carolina to subdue that state. Her Scotch-Irish people, always brave, had declared themselves independent of Great Britain a whole year before Congress had dared to do so. Cornwallis found himself in a hornet's nest. Sharpshooters and bold riders cut off his messengers and foraging parties. In the western part the mountain people gathered, who were used to Indian fighting. They were joined by rugged men from all parts of the south. Each man was dressed in homespun, with a deer's tail or a bit of green stuck in his hat. Each carried a long rifle, hunting-knife, knapsack, and blanket. At King's Mountain, on the borderline between North and South Carolina, this little army overtook and destroyed a British and Tory force under General Ferguson. Soon after, Lord Cornwallis retreated to South Carolina again. The victory at King's Mountain aroused all the patriotism of the mountain folk. Francis Marion, one of the bravest soldiers of the South, took the field with a brigade of friends and neighbors. Armed with knives and rude swords, he, like Sumter, would surprise and capture British posts, and then gallop back to the woods while the enemy would be at a loss to know where he came from. The British called him the Swamp Fox. About this time Colonel William Washington, a kinsman of the general, with a few horsemen, surprised a body of Tories who had made their headquarters in a log barn. He put the trunk of a tree on two wagon-wheels, painted it to look like a cannon, and pointed it at the barn. Then he sent a messenger with a white flag of truce to tell them to surrender or be blown to pieces. Their leader and one hundred and twelve men surrendered. They felt very foolish when they saw the cannon, and were laughed at all over the state. General Gates, broken-hearted over his defeat at Camden, was trying to gather up his scattered army. To add to his sorrow, he received word that his only son was dead, and soon after he was notified that Congress had given his command to General Greene, and ordered an investigation of his defeat. These troubles were almost more than he could bear but his feelings were soothed by a letter from General Washington, full of tender sympathy and expressions of confidence. The letter so comforted him that he was found in his room kissing the words. 
General Green was also very considerate, and the proud heart of Gates, who had wronged both these men, was melted by their kindness into lasting love for them. General Green found the army small and discouraged, but he soon inspired the men with renewed hope. He had with him the famous Virginia Rifles under General Daniel Morgan, who had served bravely at Quebec and Saratoga. This division was attacked at Cowpens, South Carolina, January 17, 1781, by Tarleton and his large force, but Morgan was so daring and skilful that he routed the British, who lost eight hundred of their eleven hundred men. Cornwallis tried to attack General Green, who knew his army was too small to risk a battle. So he led Cornwallis a long chase through forests and mountains, while his light horse troops under Harry Lee annoyed the British like wasps that sting and fly away to return and sting again. Green was at last overtaken and defeated, but the effect of the battle so crippled the British that there was nothing for them to do but retreat to the nearest seacoast town, where they might get aid from their fleet. General Green marched hard after them, turning his defeat into a victory, and so hampering Cornwallis that he lost hope. Cornwallis now turned northward into Virginia, and Green gave up the chase and marched into South Carolina. He, with Lee, Marion, Sumter, Wade Hampton, and other daring officers, fought battle after battle, until they had regained from the British most of Georgia and the Carolinas, September 1781. In Virginia, Lafayette and Mad Anthony Wayne kept annoying Cornwallis as he marched to Portsmouth on the James River. Meanwhile Washington, while giving advice and directing the campaigns in the South where he had sent some of his most brilliant generals, was watching General Clinton. Ever since the Battle of Monmouth, New Jersey, he had remained in the neighborhood of New York. Though he was needed with his army in the South, he dared not leave the Hudson unguarded. At last, however, he planned to help the South by causing the British to recall some of their troops. He had the French forces come and encamp near his army, and appear to be making arrangements for laying siege to New York. Even the soldiers thought they were going to try to take the city. General Clinton fell into the trap and wrote to Cornwallis for all the regiments he could spare. Troops were hurried aboard ship and set sail for New York. Clinton found out, too late, how completely he had been deceived, for Washington and Rochambeau slipped out of their camps and marched their armies across New Jersey. He took his revenge by sending Benedict Arnold, who was now a British officer, to his native state, Connecticut, to plunder and lay waste the country and murder the garrisons. This brutality was Arnold's last act in America, and shortly after he went to England. When the French and Continental armies reached Philadelphia, they were received with rejoicing. Washington was entertained in the home of Robert Morris, a patriot banker, without whose help in raising money Washington could not have saved the country, and who more than once had come to the aid of the army. At this time he loaned the government twenty thousand dollars in gold, and at about the same time France sent the colonists more than a million dollars in coin. The Continental Army paraded through Philadelphia, August thirtieth, 1781, dusty and ragged, but keeping step to the fife and drum. The next day the French troops marched through, jaunty in white and green uniforms, with bands playing. Lafayette, who was in Virginia, sent word to Washington that the British troops had landed at Yorktown instead of going to New York, and that Cornwallis was strongly fortified there. The British battleships lay in the river before the town. Cornwallis thought his only enemy was Lafayette, of whom he had little fear. 
Lafayette carefully arranged his troops to cut off any retreat from Yorktown, and waited for Washington. A powerful French fleet arrived from France and bottled up Cornwallis in the York River. The American and French armies marched on from Philadelphia, Washington taking time on the way to visit Mount Vernon, which he had not seen for six years. Cornwallis felt very safe and snug in Yorktown, Virginia, till he saw the French ships, and then he decided to retreat. But every way was blocked. The Allied armies, American and French, entrenched themselves close about the town. Washington spent the first night among his men sleeping under a mulberry tree. On the night of October 6, 1781, the siege of Yorktown began, Washington himself putting the match to the first gun. A week later, two strong British redoubts, forts, were stormed and taken, one by an American company under Colonel Hamilton and the other by the French. The British kept up a constant bombardment of the American lines, and Washington was often in the greatest peril. On one occasion an officer spoke of his danger, and Washington said, If you think so, you are at liberty to step back. He was never afraid, and what the Indian had said of him years ago seemed indeed true. A mighty power protected him, and he could not die in battle. The Americans pounded the British fortifications to pieces. Cornwallis looked in vain for help from New York. He was surrounded on all sides, and all hope of escape was gone. On the 19th of October, 1781, in order not to sacrifice the lives of any more of his brave men, Lord Cornwallis surrendered to General Washington. The whole country went wild with joy over this great victory, and the Americans did not forget that the French, with their men, money, and ships, made it possible for them to win. The troops held services of thanksgiving in camp, and Congress named a day when all the people should thank God. When Cornwallis surrendered, Washington treated the British with great kindness and courtesy. The English were now having so much trouble in Europe that it was difficult for them to carry on the war in America. But they were not willing to make peace on terms that America would accept. Washington thought that the only way to secure a glorious and lasting peace was to be prepared to carry on the war. If the British should see the colonists weak and unprepared, they would either conquer them or offer them an inglorious peace. He therefore fortified his forces at Newburgh on the Hudson, where they were joined by the French. The entire year 1782 was spent in camp. The men soon became discontented. Congress and the states were slow, as usual, in furnishing supplies. But Washington's patience and fair dealing kept the men loyal to him and the country. The first Articles of Peace were signed in France November 30, 1782. But it was not until September 3, 1783, that the final treaty of peace with England was signed at Paris. On April 19, 1783, just eight years after the Battle of Lexington, Washington proclaimed to his troops that the war was over. But the British did not leave New York until November, and then Washington and the Governor marched in. On December 4th, at Francis Tavern, New York City, he said good-bye to the officers and men who had served and suffered so long with him. There were tears in his eyes and theirs, as he shook their hands and bade them farewell. A ship carried him to Annapolis, Maryland, where he surrendered his commission to Congress. He said, I close this last act of my official life by commending the interests of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God and those who have the superintendence of them to his holy keeping. He sheathed his sword after years of faithful and honorable service. Through good and evil fortunes, he had always held firmly to ideals of truth, courage, and patriotism, and he retired from public life admired and loved by his countrymen. 
he arrived at Mount Vernon on Christmas Eve, 1783. The United States now had a place among the nations of the world. She had a flag of her own, the beautiful stars and stripes, created in the dark days of the war. For a hundred and fifty years the colonies had used the flag of Great Britain. When the Revolution broke out, each state and regiment had its own flag. But in 1777 Congress appointed Washington, Robert Morris, and Colonel Ross a committee to devise a flag. They were in Philadelphia at the time, and it was in the house of Betsy Ross, which still stands, that the first American flag was made, consisting of thirteen red and white stripes, with a circle of thirteen white stars on a blue field, representing a new constellation, a group of fixed stars. This flag was accepted by Congress on June 14th, the day that is now celebrated in the United States as Flag Day. End of chapter 7 Recording by Bill Borst